Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom, a coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. We are what we are. Bum, ba-dum, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> really? That's how we're opening this episode? It was either that or I was going to sing the Kesha lyric from We Are Who We Are, but I was like, people are going to already have enough of a difficult time trying to know what movie we're talking about. Uh-huh. So I went with that. Okay, you know what? I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome back to another edition of Spooky Season. Arguably the spookiest of our spooky season films, depending on, you know, how scared you are of a random man in a jumpsuit. <laughs> That's very true. This is my favorite of the films that we are talking about, which tracks because it's the one most of you have probably never heard of. Oh, that's going to lead into our context discussion so well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but today we are talking about the movie We Are What We Are from 2013, directed by Jim Mickle. This is a remake of a Spanish film, and I'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But uh, this is a movie about cannibalism, and so if that's a thing that you don't want to hear about, maybe skip. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess there's, <laughs> there's your Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Cannibalism. Yeah, like pr- a lot of cannibalism. <laughs> not, not like a lot in terms of it happens often, but it's like the backbone of literally everything that happens in this movie. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so had you ever heard of this film before I brought it to your attention? No. And then like I looked up the poster and it's very black and white and pristine And it looks like a vampire movie. It does look like a vampire movie. I will give you that. The poster does look like... It reminds me a lot of the vampire posters that they were doing for, like, different Asian vampire movies that came out around this time, like Thirst, Mm -hmm. where it's just, like, dark background, like, we are making everybody glow-in-the-dark pale, yeah, and then, like, the red is really pronounced. Yeah, so that's what I thought, and then the whole movie is a lot of, like, Browns, mm-hmm. crazy. A lot of earth tones. Tan. <laughs> it looks nothing like this. Mm-hmm. There's also this movie, a lot of it takes place during the daytime, mm-hmm. which I think is great. And we don't get nearly enough of that in horror. No, I love horror that takes place in broad daylight. But mm-hmm. this is like very overcast daylight. Mm-hmm. So it's not like bright. <laughs> yes, that's very, very true. Um, yeah, I love this movie. This is one that was introduced to me during kind of the 2010s indie horror boom, which we'll talk about when we get to context. And I just fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. 
for those who may have been like on the fence about it, the way that I am usually able to get people to watch it is that Julia Garner is one of the stars. She has won multiple Emmys for Ozark. She was in Inventing Anna. So she's probably the most well-known face from this movie, which is kind of impressive because she's also starring alongside like Wyatt Russell, who's Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's son. He's also in this movie. It's one of his first like major roles in a feature. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's like a lot of really cool people um, at the very beginning of their career in this movie. Yeah. Which I just, I think is uh, absolutely delightful. And if you have not seen We Are What We Are and you're just listening for the funsies, uh, first off, thank you. But this is what the uh, the film is all about. And we did have to go to IMDb for this one because it is a more independent release, so Fandango couldn't help us. The Parkers, a reclusive family who follow ancient customs, find their secret existence threatened as a torrential downpour moves into their area, forcing daughters Iris and Rose to assume responsibilities beyond those of a typical family. That is a very vague way of describing what it is they are doing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and this description does sort of fit uh, the time period in which this came out, where we suddenly started getting a little bit more secretive in the way that we are describing our movies, mm-hmm. specifically because the internet is becoming more prominent, streaming is becoming more prominent, so things are getting spoiled and leaked a lot easier than they used to. So log lines are going to start getting more vague. And I think that that is a great way to kind of lead into forming the context of this movie. So what have you got? So full disclosure, uh, BJ helped me kind of parse out the two different categories that we are going to be discussing in our historical context, because despite having been there, you Mm -hmm. know, I I was alive in 2013. Hey, congrats. Thanks. Uh, Not emotionally, (laughs) but (laughs) physically I was there. Um, I have not seen the majority of the horror movies here. Because mm-hmm. the studio releases that were getting all of the marketing and all of the buzz for people who weren't in the know were not movies I was interested in. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of ghosts, a lot of possession movies, just not really my forte. A lot of slow burn stuff. And also, um, I 2013, I was probably the most broke I've ever been my entire life. Mm-hmm. And... I also had a lot of friends who were broke, so we didn't go to the movies very often. And when we did, it was usually not a horror movie. (laughs) It was (laughs) something else. We saw Hana or something. (laughs) So here's kind of uh, what the studio system was putting out. Uh, Most of these I either did not see at the time or have only recently seen and not loved many of them. So we have Evil Dead. Love the Evil Dead remake. It's phenomenal. The Conjuring, Oculus, The Carrie Remake, uh, Green Inferno, The Haunting in Connecticut, VHS 2. Also love VHS 2. Uh, the First Purge, not like the first purge, the first purge, but like the uh, the, the first purge movie. <laughs> the first <laughs> and, in the series of purge movies. Yes. Why would they name their movies like this? <laughs> um, Insidious Chapter 2, uh, Curse of Chucky, which I do love. World War Z, which I raged about after seeing because I hated it. (laughs) Um, Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, Horns, Warm Bodies, Texas Chainsaw 3D. The only Texas Chainsaw movie I have not seen at this point. Do your thing, cuz. And Scary Movie 5. 
Great. I'm glad that that's how we're ending the studio <laughs> releases a scary movie five. I feel like that's the proper way to put that to bed. <laughs> uh, BJ, what, what can you say about the studio releases around this time? <laughs> studio releases around 2013 were chaotic for one reason and one reason only. The Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. It like peaked this year. The Walking Dead it was released three years prior. So we were for the first time having a dominant horror television culture. Uh, horror conventions became kind of unbearable for about a five-year period around this time because what would happen is some convention would book like baby zombie number five from The Walking Dead and there would be people lined up around the fucking block to meet this baby. It's probably two babies because that's how Hollywood works. But <laughs> either way, like there, everything just kind of got choked out by The Walking Dead. So there were not as many like major studio horror releases. And that's not to say that the ones that came out weren't good. There were plenty of good ones that came out. Um, obviously, this is where we're getting the Insidious and Purge. Like these are franchises that are happening right now. But people were kind of afraid to compete with the Walking Dead, because how can you entice viewers to leave their homes and go to the theater when the show that they love every single week, they can just watch from the comfort of their homes? Mm -hmm. It got really complicated. And this year is a big turning point in a lot of ways. Yes. Yeah, so let's look at uh, more of our direct to video films, our, our indie releases, mm -hmm. which Many of these I have now seen, but only since meeting you. You're welcome. Thanks. Um, Beneath. Hell yeah. Larry Fessenden rules. <laughs> God, it's killer fish movie. I love it. Uh, Cheap Thrills. Love that. Uh, All Cheerleaders Die. Love that. Bad Milo. Love that. Plus one. Love that one too. The Sacrament. Oh, super fucking love that. That is a Ty West movie. For any of you who saw X or Pearl, that's one of his earlier films. Go check that out. Uh, the Borderlands. Mm-hmm. All Hallows Eve, the movie that gave us Art the Clown, which that's everyone, the Terrifier movies for those that don't know. Everyone's saying Terrifier Two is really fun. I just have no interest. I'm sorry. Um, Only Lovers Left Alive. That has Tilda Swinton and uh, Tom Hiddleston being sexy and vampires. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, contracted. Uh, that's a movie a lot of people watched when the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, Frankenstein's Army. So Frankenstein's Army, really, really cool indie release, uh, has killer monster designs. So killer, in fact, Resident Evil ripped them off. Yeah, for the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Den. Uh, the Den is the precursor to uh, Unfriended films, if those are ones that you like. And the indie franchise of Hatchet 3 being released. Yes, and that is one of the 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 return movies for, for Adam Green. So that one was a pretty big release. It got like a small, limited little theatrical run. Like some of these indie films did get like very select theatrical, but they were not given like studio budgets. They were not given huge marketing. Like the reason that they found any success in theaters was by word of mouth and social media. Oh yeah. I mean, even on the other side, like the studio section that I broke these down into two, some of those were more, lower budget films that mm -hmm. also just got limited theatrical runs. Right. Like, like VHS 2. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I wanted to bring up is that we are getting into a very interesting time period, specifically right here, the, the early parts of the 2010s, a little bit at the end of the aughts. 
but we're getting into the pivot from believing direct to DVD or direct to VOD was like a death sentence because for many, many years, that's what that meant. Like if mm-hmm. you made a movie and it didn't get theatrical and it went straight to VOD or straight to DVD, that was like a kiss of death. That was a sign. This movie fucking blows. Nobody wants to watch this. We're dumping it on on a physical release. That's not really the case anymore for a lot of these movies because we're starting to inch towards the streaming world that we're in now where people prefer it. So a lot of really high quality indie films were going direct to VOD or direct to physical. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. If anything, it became this really fun treasure hunt for a lot of horror fans because now you wanted to go through and find those hidden gems that were released independently. What are the cool indie horror films being released that people don't know about, that didn't get all those marketing budgets? And how can you be the one to spread the word about it on Twitter, on Facebook, on whatever other platforms we're using in 2013? And it became really exciting. This is when you would start seeing best of lists at the end of the year that were dominated by these films. They were not studio pictures. Mm -hmm. And we started getting this new generation of producers. So we mentioned Larry Fessenden and talking about Beneath. Larry Fessenden, he's also in this movie. He is a guy from New York City who has fostered a lot of the young horror talents that we know and love today. Your Adam Wingards, your Ty West, like he was involved with a lot of these guys. And that's really cool. Um, we're starting to get like the the mumble gore movement, which anybody who uses that phrase, like they hate that their movies get called mumble gore. Okay. But um, it's a uh, the mumble core version of filmmaking combined with horror. That's where it comes from. A lot gotcha. of like Joe Swanberg movies um, out of Chicago. So that starts happening. We have Keith Calder and Travis Stevens, two producers who are responsible again for a lot of these indie guys that are still working today. And people started recognizing those brands. They knew those names like, oh, this is a Larry Fessenden movie. That means I'm going to really like this. And it's probably going to be really introspective and terrifying or oh this is a travis stevens movie this is gonna be a wild fucking ride and i'm gonna love this oh this is a keith calder movie okay this is gonna be a really really fun horror movie but there's gonna be some like really serious shit underneath the surface and like people loved that and all of these guys are still working today they're still producing really good movies Mm -hmm. um and we are what we are falls underneath that sort of umbrella uh jim mickle is a guy who directed a movie called stakeland couple of years prior to this that I really like. It's a vampire movie. Uh, very, very cool shit. Um, but he was approached to direct this. And like I said, it's a Spanish film. And kudos to him. He originally didn't want to do it because he's like, I don't like doing American remakes of international films. I think it's disrespectful. Yeah. And I think it's shitty. Usually, um, yes. And he's right. Like, yeah. usually that is the case. We suck at it because mm-hmm. uh, we make it too Americanized and it becomes a problem. But what's fascinating is that We Are What We Are is one of the few examples where I think the American remake uh, enhances the original material. Because in the original film, what we're dealing with is this family of cannibals where the father dies and now it is up to the sons to track and find, you know, this year's sacrifice, this year's meal. So it's about a father dying and sons having to go on the hunt because now they're, they're the men of the household. 
They're the bread winners. <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> Only it's like way grosser than bread. <laughs> yes, but that's very much what's happening. And while that is absolutely a valid story and I think a very interesting you know, examination of masculinity, I've seen that story. I've seen countless stories f- across genres where father died and now it's my job as the son to avenge him. I must go to war on behalf of father. I must be the one to bring in the food on behalf of father. Like I have to grow up before I'm ready. I have to grow up before I'm ready. Like Yes, all of these things I've seen a hundred times across different subgenres. What Mickle does with the new one is mother dies, mm-hmm. and now the onus is on the daughters of the family, and it's not about the hunt, it's about the preparation, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is infinitely fucking worse. It is way weirder to prepare a body to be made into food than it is to find a body and capture and bring it home. And it also is a lot more interesting in the way that we turn our daughters, especially oldest daughters, into de facto mothers constantly. Mm-hmm. They are immediately saddled with childcare once they're old enough to be responsible with another child. And their lives and autonomy are sacrificed for the sake of families. And that is not explored very often. And it certainly isn't explored in horror. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Mickle did that is really interesting and I think adds for a much richer and more original story. I've not seen the original, but there's a a lot more meat on the bones of this story, dare I say. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is just a matter of opinion, and there's plenty to say about it. I also enjoy this one more because the original film I find a little problematic, um, because in the original film, the boys are looking for, you know, who's going to be the sacrifice, and the first thing that they do is they find a sex worker, and they're really gross about it. And when that doesn't work out, they end up pursuing a gay man. And then there's a debate on whether or not they will eat him because he's a homosexual. And while there's definitely nuance to those conversations and you can discuss like the way that religion imparts those sorts of mindsets on young boys and whatever, whatever. There's already cannibalism here. I don't also need homophobia. Yeah. <laughs> um. So for that reason, I prefer the American remake. I do. And I think that it's a stronger film. Yeah. And, I mean, of all the lines to draw in the sand, just in terms of who you're going to eat, which, like, I've definitely read studies where they've talked to people who do, like, ritualistic cannibalism in various parts of the world, and they're like, oh, no, we have standards. We don't like to eat Americans. They're gross. Yeah, we're apparently all, like, oily, gross monsters. Yeah, like, we apparently taste terrible. So I'm like, eh, I guess we have standards in what we eat, and, like, that's what separates us from the animals. I guess so. <laughs> it's not that we can use tools. Yeah. Homophobia doesn't exist in the animal kingdom outside of humans. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, before we dive in any deeper, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, 
You give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts and you tag us on social media, hashtag this ends at prom or at this ends at prom. As we enter into spooky season, I know that you must be dying for more of Harmony and I to talk about all things horror. Well, you can do that. Get yourself a subscription to Shudder. It is like Netflix for horror movies, but so much better and way cheaper. It is the best time to get it, the reason for the season, especially because Harmony and I are both featured in Queer for Fear, The History of Queer Horror. It is a new docuseries from Brian Fuller of Hannibal fame, and it is all about the history of queer horror. Check us and so many brilliant, wonderful minds and some of your absolute favorites. You're all going to freak out and scream when you see some of the people in this doc, I swear. But it is released on Shudder every week. Give it a look. Already, so we're dealing with two main girls in this, and they are both teens. Um, Iris, who's the older one, I think she's supposed to be like nineteen or twenty. She seems to be an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Rose, I think, is supposed to be like fifteen or sixteen. I think they said fourteen. Oh, maybe fourteen. Maybe. Okay, so either way, younger, but they are both teen girls. Yeah. So first, we will talk about Iris, the eldest, uh, who's played by Amber Childers. How do you feel about Iris? She does not seem to question her father as much as her sister does. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, weirdly enough, like, she's at the age where you would think, like, oh, I'm going to be spreading my wings, but I think she feels more of, like, the familial obligation to now step into her mother's role. Because, like, by the way, this movie opens with mom dying. Like, she's, yeah. like, they're preparing for a flood, and she just had to run to the market real quick, I guess. And well, the best part is she's going to like the corner store and she's buying rope and flashlights. Like she's clearly buying the tools that dad is later going to use to find the person they're going to eat. And that's when she dies. Family preparations, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like she like starts to bleed and then passes out and hits her head on like a post, falls into a puddle and drowns. Yeah, there's a lot that happens. She just there was no coming back from this. Oh, yeah. So. That, that's how this opens. It's it's violent. Um, Iris is the one who actually has to identify her mother's body. Because mm-hmm. the, the coroner who is a, a William Hurt type, but I don't know who he actually is. So that's Michael Parks. Uh, he's like the mad scientist in Tusk for those that uh, okay. recognize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's also a guy who pops up in a lot of these like indie horror movies from the 2010s. Yes. He's like a mainstay. So he's one of those guys that when horror fans were watching this movie, we got to do like the Leo DiCaprio Once Upon a Time in Hollywood point where it's like, ah, ah, there he is. I see Uh him. The dad is too, Bill Sage. Uh, Yeah, but. He's he's a Dick Miller type. Yes. Like that's something really interesting (laughs) is because because there were so many of these people working within like the same sandboxes and using each other's crews and using each other's actors we started to have this weird like sort of horror version of the the brat pack that started happening and there was a splat pack that did exist that okay. was like Adam Green, Eli Roth, uh James Gunn like a lot of those guys but there was also like an acting pool that kept being used over and over again because all the same guys were working on the same budgets and they all wanted to work with each other's friends and if you were a good director and then you could be like, hey, man, go work on my buddy's movie. He's great. Then mm-hmm. the actors are going to be like, oh, OK, cool. I had a great time with you. Sure, I'll go do that. Sure. So, yeah, there's a lot of those actors in here, too, which is really cool. Horror communities take care of 
their beloved character actors. Yes, they do. Just like endlessly. You you do one random movie that costs like $8,000 in 1981 and you will still be able to live off of mm-hmm. convention circuit signings. No, but that's very, very real. Yeah. And what was, this is like kind of an aside, but it's still related to what we're talking about. But the new Hellraiser movie just came out and you and I both had the privilege of interviewing Jamie Clayton. She was so sweet. She's so sweet. Yeah. And in one of the interviews I had with her, I mentioned that to her. I was like, people are going to get tattoos of you. Like, you know that, right? And like her brain exploded. And mm-hmm. she's like, holy shit, you're right. And I said a similar thing to Odessa Azayan where I was like, hey, uh, your character is the protagonist of a horror movie. Like, you're good forever. Like, horror fans will protect you and defend you and see everything that you do forever because Mm -hmm. they love you. And it was a similar thing where it was like, you're not wrong Mm -hmm. because no other genre does this. We will carry on. We've kept our tradition in its purity. We do it the way that we've always done it. Iris is the eldest. It's her responsibility now. You ready for that? That's the way it works. I found something strange this morning. And I believe it's human remains. The storm has washed some bones way down creek. We need to stick together now. There are 30 people missing from this town in the last 20 years. We have our, our, our coroner, doctor type man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he's just named Doc. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, both these kids don't need to see their dead mother to identify the body. Uh, the oldest one. Yeah, you come, I guess. Because it's always the oldest. The eldest daughter has to play mom, has to play family therapist, mm-hmm. has to be the responsible one. Like, maybe it sucks I'm, being a firstborn. Maybe I'm a little <laughs> bitter as being the firstborn in my own family. I don't get to talk about that very often. This might be the episode where I do, but we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Continue with your thoughts. Thing is, I was the second born, and I don't think a lot of this stuff fell onto my brother because he was not a responsible enough person to have stuff fall onto him. That's also very true. Like, so you also have to you be have to be able to trust the firstborn with this kind of shit. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, like, I have a lot of scars because he was irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's kind of it. Like, this movie is... It has dialogue, but like for the record, we we tried putting on subtitles, and we, that was just not allowed. No, the movie just said no. It, <laughs> it said it was on, and they were like, "No, you don't get them." So some of the dialogue, like I couldn't even catch because this is a very soft-spoken film. Dad, yes. in particular, just mumbles his way through the whole movie. Everything in like he's, a very hushed tone. Everything he says is real. Yeah, he's it's down in there. Yeah, so like there are some nuances and some details in the dialogue that I. Did not get because just how the movie goes. Like we turned it up and then it was just like, (laughs) scary things happen, (laughs) intense things happen. And it would be like, no, we can't be annoying the neighbors with that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of my, my feelings on Iris in a nutshell. I love Iris and obviously feel a lot of kinship with her as a fellow eldest daughter. And something that I find really interesting is the point that you made about how she doesn't question dad as much as, say, Rose does. Mm -hmm. And I think that that comes with age. It's one of those things where the oldest child has been in it for so long and has been a part of the familial tradition for so long that it becomes a lot harder to break those habits or be able to break that cycle because you're so embedded in it and Mm -hmm. you've had so many more years in it. But what's interesting is that Iris also does have interests and she does have conflict with it, especially once 
she has to step up and kind of take on mom's role. Mm -hmm. And she realizes like just kind of how deeply fucked up it has been because now she's literally seeing how the sausage is made or in this case, the chili is made. Mm -hmm. And that is really traumatizing to her and like horrific. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense of when you're a kid, your parents do things for you and they tell things to you and you just believe it because you're, you're a kid. You don't oh, know any better. There's so many stories that you see on like Reddit where it's like, hey, here's the thing that my family did that's absolutely insane, but I thought it was normal. What do you mm -hmm. mean you don't do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the poop knife story. <laughs> yeah, like poop knife stories, like stuff like that where it's like, what do you mean not everyone had a poop knife? <laughs> right, but that's that's kind of what's happening here where it's like she gets to an age where she obviously knows not everybody does this mm -hmm. and like this is dangerous and it's a problem, but also when you've had over a decade of, of of parents telling you this is how it has to be and you have to do this, otherwise bad things happen to our family, you're gonna believe it after a while. Oh, it's it's There's a lot of nuttiness that happens behind closed doors with families, mm -hmm. particularly in uh, secluded ecosystems, mm -hmm. particularly if they have a, a, a strong religious center. Which they do. Oh, do they ever. But they're not like... Christian. They're not mm -mm. Catholic. This is a this is a fringe religion. Yes, they are their own sort of repressive culture. And I am fascinated by repressive cultures. Anything to do with like the Amish. The Amish, the weird <laughs> subsects of Mormonism that exist. Like I am fascinated by this. And it's specifically because I grew up not repressed at all. Mm -hmm. So this is just like an alien world to me. But it's also so fascinating because like you'll see documentaries about like the women who who escaped, like, the FLDS, like, the Warren Jeffs sort of world. And people always say things like, well, how did you not know? How did you not know that this was a problem? Why did you believe this? How could you have believed this? Because people don't understand, like, when you're in that insular of a community, it's literally all you know. You do not know how the rest of the world acts. Oh, yeah. Think about, like, the people who have left the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes, like Megan like, Phelps. Yeah, this is this was normal. This was your whole world. So, like, why would you think that the world is wrong? Exactly. Like, if you if everyone in your life is telling you to do a certain thing, otherwise bad thing will happen. You're going to listen to them because there's also this intrinsic belief that we have at children with. There's this intrinsic belief we have as children that the adults in our life are here to protect us and guide us the correct way. Mm -hmm. And so we're not going to question that, and especially if it's religious. So the Parker family, the reason that they're cannibals and they have this like little book that is filled with a diary where everybody who has ever done the preparation has exp explained like what happened, who the person is, like why they did it. But when their family was first like settling or traveling west, I'm not. It's not entirely clear. It's just you know it's something old timey kind of colonial days. It's something Donner Party ish. Ish, yeah. Where the family is trying to move to a new land, they are all about to suffer and freeze to death. Um, but somebody dies, and they are able to use their meat as food, and that saves their family. It saves their familial line. Because then that was enough meat to, like, get people through. But Doinkle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's build a snowman. <laughs> that is a Cannibal the Musical reference for those who didn't catch that. Um, but because of that, it has now become this familial tradition. Like, this sounds really fucked. But the closest way that I can kind of compare it to 
is the way that so many holiday religions exist where, you know, the, the obvious answer is like obvious is like Kwanzaa or Hanukkah where you have like, Oh, there were, there was not enough oil, but it lasted eight days. So we do eight candles to celebrate that because that's what we needed to stay alive. That's kind of what this religion is doing. It's like, we had the risk of everybody dying, but this person died and gave us their meat. And then we were all able to survive. It so was a miracle. It was a miracle. Like it's, it's like a fucked up. It's backwards way meat. less miraculous than Hanukkah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it, like it's so, it's like, it's so fucked up. And, uh, but that's how they've been operating for hundreds of years at this point. Yeah, I think the diary entry it's somewhere in the 1700s, mm-hmm. like 1782 or something. Yes. So that's why they do this every year, but obviously like times have changed. You can get food. Mm-hmm. Um you don't have to do this, but it's become a tradition and well, you know dad says all the time, it's who we are. True, but like if you actually want to break it down, there is almost an element of survival. Not like high stakes survival. Like they start the preparation for the ritual, which inv- involves like fasting for several days. Mm-hmm. And over the course of that time, there is this flood. It absolutely washes out the road. It knocks out their power. Um, the whole movie is basically lit by candlelight. Yeah, which I think is really fascinating because obviously this is a family living in contemporary times. But because of that flood knocking out the power, it does force them into this very archaic way of existing. And it just adds to the weird religious undertones yeah. they have because it makes them feel even more like off the grid because they're literally not part of the power grid for the entire movie. Yeah, it's very briefly because, I mean, the floodwaters recede and then they could go to town. They just don't have power, though. Mm-hmm. Um, it, for a brief moment, it's like, ah, yes, it's like we're snowed in. It's mm-hmm. it's this callback to the past that makes it feel even more justified in what they're doing because it's for survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, truly bananas things seem logical and necessary when Mm -hmm. your mind is breaking down by the human version of mad cow disease. Yes. And so that is what was the initial start to mom's passing is that she's developed this disease that really only happens in cannibalistic communities. um, But it causes you to develop physical symptoms very similar to like Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. um, And then eventually your brain just kind of rots out Mm -hmm. um we're starting to see that dad has some of the effects of it because he's real shaky um and the the girls are not quite there yet but it does change your brain chemistry um that's a thing that's why you know mad cow diseases cows eating their own that's why you're not supposed to eat your own no there 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 are some species that do that on occasion like lions will eat lions Mm -hmm. um there was a thing going around uh, on Twitter recently of people discovering that, oh, wait, I think Scar ate Mufasa. Yes. <laughs> so, like, that's a thing. Um, sharks will eat sharks. Like, it's not common, but it, it does happen in apex predators. But, like, their bodies are built for that. Right. Like, they can handle that. Cows aren't designed to eat cows. Right. And <laughs> humans have not been, like, we have not evolved in a way that we are supposed to eat humans. Right. So, you know, that's kind of what iris is dealing with and what's also really interesting is that iris then has an out she has a way to escape the family and that is 
Deputy Anders, who is played by Wyatt Russell. They talk about how they've had a past before, like, you know, that's the first boy she ever kissed Mm -hmm. when they were younger. He clearly definitely still has the hots for her, but he's now old enough to understand your dad's a wackadoodle, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how to do this, and she is clearly very interested in him. Mm -hmm. And there's an extent with Iris where she knows what she's doing is messed up, but doesn't know how to grapple with it because like it, there's that familial obligation. There's that pressure. There's all of that on top of her. Mm-hmm. And because there's always going to be that little part in the back of her head, that's going to believe something bad is going to happen to me. If, if I don't do this, like I still have to do this, even though I, I know, I know that it's weird. I know that it's a problem, but she knows deep down, like if she wants to be with him, she's going to eventually have to tell him. Yes. So, like, there's there's two things. Um, first of all, we'll get the, the vain one out of the way. Poor Wyatt Russell and his dad, Kurt Russell, their face goes up by about 800% in handsomeness when they have <laughs> facial hair. Uh, yeah, I know you're not wrong. Um, like, Wyatt Russell, like, when he's got, like, a little bit of beard, he's, like, a handsome, like, hangman Adam Page type. Mm-hmm. And his dad, gorgeous when he has a beard. Mm-hmm. Without it, he looks a little bit like a thumb. <laughs> I will say I think he's grown into his face in the years. He's like a little cherub baby in this. He's uh-huh. he's quite young. Yeah. Um, but no, I do agree. I think both of the Russell boys look infinitely better with, with beards. Like, it's... it's absurd how much more handsome they get with a beard. <laughs> yes, because they, they do have very boyish features, which I think people don't think about with Kurt Russell. Oh, it's he's very like, rounded. Because yeah. he's like such a man. But like, no, like the, the Gold, Goldie's jeans are doing some work. Mm-hmm. On, on Wyatt's face, and it does make him a little cherubish. It's just, it's double rounded. Yes. And it's, <laughs> I just think he's so cute. Yes. He's such a cute little lovesick puppy in this movie. I love him so much. He, he is a cop, though. <laughs> he is a cop. I What's super weird, though, is like, I'm weirdly forgiving of weird ass, like rural small town cops because it's like, there's not a lot for y'all to do and to become. You have like five options at this point. You're not working with some weird systemic stuff quite like, as much. You, you don't have the, uh, the same handful and budget that the Los Angeles Police Department does. Right. Like all the shit that it does to like fuck they're, up. They're lumped in the same sort of level to me as like James Marsden in the Sonic movies, where everybody who works there is also kind of a dumbass. And it's like, all right, you're in a different playground here. Still a cab, but yeah. also like, I don't think you're maliciously evil. I think you're just... This is a thing for me to do after high school because there's nothing else to do. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But the second thing I wanted to bring up is that there is this, like, thing that's sort of touched on and I think reinforces their belief in cannibalism that um, it wards off, like, sickness. Mm -hmm. And, like, Dad's Parkinson's is getting worse. Like, his shaking is getting worse. So he's like, oh, we have to do the ritual. Otherwise, like... I'm going to spiral even more into, like, my uh, my poor health. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment when they're supposed to be fasting where Rose, who I, we'll, we'll touch on her more in a little bit, but she gives the youngest kid, who is, like, a son, who we haven't even mentioned yet, because mm-hmm. there is a little boy in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, she gives him, like, some, some sugar snaps or something like that. Snap pops. Yeah, like, some cereal, and he ends up getting a fever. Yes. So it's like, oh, you you didn't follow the rules of the ritual, and now he's sick. Not yeah. because, like, I don't know, he's not eating and they're living through, like, a cold, dark night for three days straight. <laughs> right. And also, you gave him sugar. 
Mm-hmm. Like all this kid has had is milk and sugar and he's a growing boy and it's a flood. And also he's going to crash. Yeah. Like th- your body's going to freak out when that happens. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are some like weird coincidental things that have logical explanations, but because they're not thinking about the logic of the situation, it is becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're trusting the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we jump over to Rose, I do want to say with Iris, um, I think the, the the nail in the coffin, or in this case, the axe in the head for mm-hmm. her being on board with what happens is she and 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 baby baby White Russell uh, go to do it in the family cemetery because of course they have a family cemetery. And um, this is all just to try and cover the fact that bones are drifting downstream. Mm-hmm. By the way, so she's like, oh, yeah, no, um, like, we're not hiding bodies. There's a family cemetery up up river, and maybe they fell, came from that. Mm-hmm. And they go and fuck in the cemetery. Yeah, so, because we did kind of graze over that. Because of the flood, the flood has, like, shifted all of the soil. So a lot of the bones from the people that the family have eaten over the years uh, have just ended up in the river. Mm-hmm. And they're ending up places they shouldn't be, and it's... A lot. There's a really kind of harrowing scene of dad swimming in the river, just like finding skulls and femurs just everywhere. And it's like that scene in Poltergeist. Uh, um, I mean, okay, you you call it harrowing. I call it a little silly. It is kind of Cause, funny. Because he's basically just like barrel rolling in like, I don't know, four inches of water as bones are drifting away. And he's just going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, in a different context, this is a Will Ferrell performance. Yes. Okay. No, that's fair. So I'm like, this is a little silly. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's pretty great. So yes, she's trying to like hide that. Because again, he is a cop. He's uh-huh. investigating. Uh-huh. And she's like, nope, it's a family cemetery. And then they start to bone. But inch. <laughs> um, and then in in the middle of coitus, dad puts an axe through his head and he bleeds. All, all up into her face. Over her face uh-huh. and onto her, her very sad bra. Um, because, again, religious people don't believe in underwire, apparently. And uh, the thing that always gets me about that is dad is so matter of fact where he's just like, clean this up, like, figure it out. And he's, you know, pissed off. He just killed a man while he was inside his daughter. And we're just mm-hmm. not going to talk about that. He's yeah. just, nope, we're not doing it. Got to push that corpse right out of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, he also, like, calls her, like, a harlot or something. I think he calls her that. a whore. Yeah. It's it's he's he's not happy that his daughter is having sex, even though it's implied that she is like an adult. <laughs> yes, it's very much uh, that kind of judgmental religious. You're a whore. It's out of wedlock kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's what we have to deal with 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 Iris for the time being. We will come back. Um, but Rose, I also find really interesting because while Rose does not have nearly as many responsibilities as uh, Iris does. It sort of implied that Rose has taken up Iris's position. So now that Iris has become de facto mom, that means Rose has to become de facto Iris. And what that means is she's now responsible to take care of little brother Rory, Mm -hmm. um, who is played by a little kid named Jack Gore. He's adorable. Um, But she's become kind of the maternal child raising person. She's the one who sneaks him the snap pops because he's hungry Mm -hmm. um, because she doesn't want him to... Go without. She's a rebellious teen. She's breaking rules. And that's the other thing. So she's a little bit younger. And so her understanding of the tradition that they do has been mostly through childhood. And she's only just now coming into her own as an adult and recognizing, 
hey, this is fucked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. Well, we all question authority when we're 14. Right. It's like the first time we learn that we can. So she's starting to do that a little bit because she's seeing how it's affecting the family and she does help Iris with a lot of stuff because Iris is, it's her first time. She's not mom yet. And so then that means Rose gets a look not only at like what Iris has to deal with and what like the family has been doing for years and like actually seeing it, there is no like cognitive dissonance at all. She knows, but it's also a look into her own future because that's going to be her job eventually too. If she branches out of the family and gets married, she's going to have to do this shit. Mm-hmm. And so we're dealing with these two girls with a very similar dynamic in the sense that they are loyal to each other above all else. Like they are a unit, but at the same time, this is a huge upheaval for the two of them. Mm-hmm. And Julia Garner is so unbelievably talented. There's a reason she's won so many Emmys. But this is such like a restrained performance for her because the women in this in this family have been taught to be submissive. Mm-hmm. So she's really like direct and intentional. But when she gets to like lose it and like wail and cry, it's like, aha, there it is. There's the Ozark performance <laughs> that you're going to give in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Julie Garner did so many really wonderful indie films around this time period before she like got the Ozark thing and blew up and became a huge star. Um, like this, this one, Electric Children, um, she's in the movie Grandma that I like with Lily Tomlin, like really fantastic stuff. And what a great head of hair. Oh yeah. Um, I was stunned when she let her hair down like over an hour into this movie. When she stops having like the very tight braids. Yes. Because I've not seen her in anything else. Yeah. You don't watch TV. So. I don't. And I guess that's primarily where she shines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was like, wait. Where have these curls been the whole time? And I was like, uh, there, just under those braids. I was like, these are wonderful. I love seeing (laughs) actresses with curly hair. (laughs) Um, But because Rose has sort of taken on Iris's position as, like, mother number two. Yes. She also does a lot of mothering to Iris, which I think is really interesting. Because Iris is going through a really tough time, you know, adjusting to her new role in the family. Um, obviously when Anders gets murdered while in her, that's Mm -hmm. traumatic as hell. And Rose is the one who takes care of her. Like they never go to their dad for any sort of emotional support. They don't go to him for anything. Like they are both so terrified of him, but also revere him so deeply, which I think is the story of anybody who's ever lived in a repressive or oppressive society Mm -hmm. is that you are simultaneously like in awe of and horrified of the patriarchy that exists within your community. Oh yeah. I mean, there's this almost this unspoken bond that they have throughout the whole movie that is like, it's us against the world. Very much so. And I remember when this came out and I was like very upset about this is because we often see the two of them sharing a bed It's shown a lot and they'll even have like all three of the kids in bed together. And it's clear that like this has become a coping mechanism for all of them Mm -hmm. of like, I'm scared. I don't want to be alone. So they are together. It's like when kids crawl into mom and dad's bed during a thunderstorm. 100%. Bad dream. Yes. But they don't crawl into mom and dad's bed. They crawl into each other's bed because they need each other. Because you don't trust mom and dad. (laughs) No. It's like, it's very much a trauma response. And, you know, people made all these really weird comments about how like, oh, I think there's, like, incestuous stuff going on between the two of them. And it's like, no. Like, that's not a thing. Like, don't add that here. This is very much two young women who are related to each other 
who need each other. Mm -hmm. Like they are each other's support system above all else. They have also, they're maladjusted socially because of the the oppressive environment they grew up in. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing queer about their relationship. They they are sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just very weird how people are so like accustomed to not be able to see two women together in any capacity and not view it as sexual. Oh no. Some people are really fucking weird. Like uh, one of the biggest examples I can always think of through pop culture is all of the people who would sexualize the two band leaders of heart. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, oh, Anne and Nancy Wilson, I bet they do lesbian stuff. And it's like, dude, they're fucking sisters. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's like, it's such a weird thing that people add to it. And you know, they'll talk about, Rose and Iris in this and they're like oh no they clearly like they clearly are closer than that and it's like how starved were you for any sort of affection or love in your family that you cannot see like platonic love between siblings exist in a world or intimacy or affection like it doesn't have to be sexual well if I may interject uh as someone who is socialized male um (laughs) that is just a thing though like you don't share beds with other men. Like at sleepovers, you don't sleep in the same bed as like your friends who are sleeping over. You don't sleep in bed with someone unless there is like a sexual connotation to it. And I think for people who are not adjusted or not acclimated or even familiar with how like women normally interact with each other, especially as teens, especially as people who are close, they can't not see it as sexual because any kind of intimacy is intrinsically linked to sexuality. No, I know that. I know that that's like the way that people are socialized and how they are led to believe. I just think it's dumb. I agree. (laughs) I just think that it is so backwards and ridiculous. But it fits with the theme of this movie where like some guys will see this and everything they've ever been led to believe by all of the men in their lives, you know, dads, grandparents, older brothers, friends, makes them think this one thing. Yeah, you're right. It tracks. It does. It's wrong. I hate it. But it tracks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I just hate it. Um, Because I love the the relationship the two of them have in this movie so very much because sisterhood is such an interesting thing to explore in film. And I think it falls under a couple categories, one of which is obviously like the feuding sibling rivalry. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my favorite sibling rivalry fights of like, Sisters that clearly love each other but also are at each other's throats is in the to-do list. Um, so goddamn good. Like, that sister relationship is fantastic. Um, you get kind of the us-against-the-world thing. Like, we explore this in Ginger Snaps. Uh-huh. Um, they have a very similar relationship to yes. to Rose and Iris. And another one that people like to believe is lesbian, um, despite the fact that they are sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also then have like the the shadow to the golden sister, like where one of them is constantly living in the shadow of the other. Like I mm-hmm. think those are the three major categories of sister movies. And then of course like sisterhood of people you're not related to at all. Like traveling pants. Yes, like the, <laughs> the traveling pants sisterhood. <laughs> but I love seeing Rose and Iris's relationship because we don't get to see it very often where it is two sisters that have bonded together because they are trapped in a similar fucked up circumstance and they have no one else. Like they can't talk to anyone about this. Mm-hmm. Even if they like, I think it's assumed that they're homeschooled. Um, I would believe well, that they were. I mean, where would Iris have met Wyatt Russell? I think it, just in town. I mean, it seems like a small enough town where it's like, you know, sub thousand people. 
Oh, that's, I think, even pushing it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like you just see people around and you interact, I guess, with each other. Maybe like at the 4th of July picnic or something. You, right. You run like, into each other. Exactly. So, I mean, they're probably homeschooled. Um, so that means that they're even further indoctrinated. Right. And I don't think that they have the ability, like they have no one to talk to about this. Even their neighbors that, because the dad owns like a massive piece of land for obvious hiding bodies for centuries reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's people living on this land. There's people that live on the land. They have like mobile homes and, and double wides and they, they live on their land. Yes. There's a very nice older lady with a very sweet dog who gets murdered off screen mm-hmm. who like babysits and helps take care of their kids. Yes. Brings them fucking vegan lasagna. Yes. Um, there's, you know, there's nice people that are there. Larry Fessenden shows up as someone who lives there and then gives money and then leaves. And I think it's solely to be like, oh, hey, Larry's here. Hey. It's a cameo and also just like I, I think he says like oh the land is like dried up or something like that like mm-hmm. there, there's no mining money or whatever he was doing in town to make a living he can't do it anymore so yeah. he's packing up and moving on mm-hmm. so like you know everything kind of around them feels like it's crumbling like from every turn whether it's geologically because of the flood the like literal the ground, ground is, literally, is crumbling, literally crumbling, sliding away. Um, or the fact that it seems like people are leaving the town because there's just not enough like money for anybody to to get by on. Your facade is crumbling. The facade is crumbling. Mom is gone. So now the family unit is shifting. The girls are feeling apprehensive. They might bail on this. Like everything feels like it's falling apart, which for a movie that is as restrained as it is, I think the stakes are constantly feel high when I'm Mm -hmm. watching this and it's because of all of those little factors like this movie doesn't feel like it has high stakes in the sense of like oh we're watching a Roland Emmerich movie where buildings are literally crumbling around us and everything's exploding they're high stakes in that like the one wrong move unravels everything Mm -hmm. and the girls are holding the thread the whole movie yes and that's just harrowing so that's what we have with the girls, and we mentioned Doc earlier, but it's very important to also talk about like how Doc fits in with their story. Mm-hmm. So he's not only the coroner, um, so he performs the autopsy of mom and discovers like she has cannibalism disease, um, but he has also had a daughter missing for many years, and once he starts realizing that there are this family of cannibals. He starts to realize his worst nightmare, mm-hmm. which is that there is a very good chance that this family kidnapped his daughter and ate her. Mm-hmm. And so that puts him on like this kind of Captain Ahab style mission to get to the truth, be able to prove it, and then confront him. Because like cops are not going to be able to help through this. Um, so... Doc is figuring out the truth as everything else is happening. Mm-hmm. And that also puts like kind of like a time clock on everything is like, oh, my God, when is he going to confront them? How is that confrontation going to go? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's inevitable. He's going to learn the truth. He's going to figure it out. He's going to realize this family ate his daughter and he's going to have to do something about it. And mm-hmm. it's going to be messy. Tell daddy supper's ready. Are you okay? I didn't know it was gonna be like that. I won't do that again. 
make me. Nobody can, not even God. Unfortunately, he did not figure it out soon enough to save their most recent sacrifice. No, and something that they they don't outright say, but it's pretty easy to figure out, they target teen girls. Um, they're, they're younger. They, braces. A lot of them have braces, which is, like, really upsetting. Uh, it's a very upsetting visual. I don't know what it is. Like, I think it's because braces are so intrinsically linked with, like, being juvenile and not being an adult, even though plenty of adults have braces, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we think about it in terms of, like, adolescence a lot. Well, yeah. You think of it as an awkward phase. You think of it mm -hmm. as a thing you grow out of either before or in high school. Yes. It's, it's probably, like, 90-some percent of people who have braces get braces before they reach 18. Yeah. Nowadays, like, it'd be like, oh, you get Invisalign because you don't want people to think you have braces as an adult. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there there's reasons for it in the sense of, like, that person is easier for them to kidnap and also, control. Also, they're, they're pure. They're also pure, this, which... This is the, uh, the, I guess, the remakes version of, like, oh, we don't want, you know, a sex worker, their disease. We don't want a gay person because, like, mm -hmm. no homo. It's uh, it is it is the modern interpretation of the virgin sacrifice, mm -hmm. uh, but instead of throwing her into a volcano, they're going to eat her, and that is deeply upsetting on a number of ways, and unfortunately, is so easily be able to be unpacked with just that purity culture is a fucking plague. Mm -hmm. Um, like there you go, there you have it, and uh, so yes, they they do tend to target and kill young girls for a multitude of reasons. And that's upsetting. But they do also eat Anders. We <laughs> don't want to leave that out. Dad was not about to waste that meat. Mm -hmm. uh, they're in survival mode. They're in survival mode. Um, so, you know, and, the, and they do turn the bodies into a chili. And not that that's supposed to, like, make it more appealing. But it's not like those images you see of people who, like, fry up limbs on, like, uh, what is that called? Uh, like a like a like a spit roast. Yeah, they're not spit roasting they're not, people. It's not like a rotisserie it's, chicken, but no, with people. No, 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 no. Like it's it's hidden in one of those. <laughs> it's a very Eric Cartman way of doing it, of like hiding uh, yeah. hiding bodies in chili. But here's the thing, like the human parts aside, it's a good looking chili. It does look really good, which is really gross. It's real, it's real hearty. I just, I don't know, man. I haven't had a good chili in a while. I live in Los Angeles. It's not a common thing out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's something, too. Like, I would love to talk to Jim Mickle and be like, look, what chili recipe is that actually without human? This, this is where we're just going to find out that it's like. Because it looks like, really good. We, we're going to find out that it's like. It's uh, like dog food, probably. Uh, maybe dog food, or it'll be like, oh, yeah, and we thickened it up with glue or some shit like that. <laughs> like, where it's like, oh. This is just Hormel from a can. Exactly. Where's those, those things that we find out where all the beautiful food you see in commercials, it's like, oh, yeah, that's not ice cream. That's mashed potatoes. Right. Because it just needs to look good on film. So it's like some bullshit. <laughs> right. But it's just like. Like, when we did our my cocktail book, we needed to thicken up a thing and we didn't have any milk so i ended up putting lotion in one of the drinks <laughs> for photograph purposes right. it looked great it's just you know don't drink it right just but what does it say about us that we both had that thought watching this movie about cannibalism of damn that does look like a good chili though it means we're fucking pieces of shit what 
Like, aesthetically, it's a handsome chili. It is a handsome chili. Like, whoever was in the art department, kudos. It looks delicious. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it works for the movie because if you made a really unappealing chili, then it's like, I don't know, it it would make it worse. Because mm-hmm. then it's like you're forcing these kids to eat, like, an ugly, homely-looking chili. You, you don't want You don't that. want them to eat schlop. You, you want to have this certain level of separation where if you didn't know... Mm-hmm. It would be fine. Yes. No, that's a very, very good point. Um, So everything kind of culminates with all of the stakes reaching a a critical mass. We are at the point of no return. They've got to go through with with the everything, which they do, and they sit down for for their ceremonial dinner, and Doc shows up. Mm -hmm. And... all hell breaks loose. They have a showdown. They have a showdown. Doc has brought a gun. Some, some Dad no has a gun. Country for old men thing where they're sitting at opposites of the table and it's like a western. <laughs> yes, it's that's a very good way to put it. Like it does feel like a like a like a standoff. Mm-hmm. And so then that happens, and you think up until this point, like the girls are they're gonna leave, they're gonna take out Dad, they're gonna peace out, they're gonna take their little brother, and they're gonna go. And they do take the little brother and go, but not before eating their own father, <laughs> just well, raw. Well, there, there, there is a showdown that is extended past this. Yes. Where like Doc gets shot, Dad gets shot, Doc does not double tap him, even it's like, oh, dude, no, he's clearly fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you hit him in like the shoulder, he is not dead, he's getting back up. And then they have a very uh, shining kind of chase. Mm-hmm. Where it's like him running through the fucking night, and that's where he kills the dog. That's where he murders the very nice lady. They're who... running in the rain. The kids are screaming. Tommy. Yeah, it really, it really is like The Shining, though. Yeah, and maybe it's that I don't get scared of movies, so I'm distracted by things. But also, it could play into the fact that this kid is just kind of like, you know, all this is normal ass stuff. He doesn't see anything wrong with it. But like when they're hiding in this like babysitter lady's RV. And dad is like breaking in. The kid looks very bored. Yeah, he. I think he's also feverish too. Like this kid is sick. Uh-huh. He's getting dragged out in the rain. Everything's chaos. He's very he's non-responsive just... in this scene. Yeah, no. And I just he... keep looking at his face, and I'm like, "What's wrong with this kid?" He's in shutdown mode for sure. Uh-huh. Like he's he's disassociating. He's disassociating. He's out. <laughs> but then you have him being held by Rose, who is Julia Garner, doing a Julia Garner just. Mm-hmm. Every emotion laid bare in front of in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there is like that extended chase. They end up all back at the house, and the girl, like the girls, look a fucking mess. Especially Iris. Like Iris is tired. Her eyes are beet red because she's been crying for days. Mm-hmm. And well, they she just had, she had to pull a dead man out of her. <laughs> yeah, she's she's been through it, and she had to prepare. It's insinuated she had to prepare his body for this meal. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, like, you know, there's there's a lot going on here. And what's just so interesting, though, is that they are what they are. And they still eat dad. Like, that's uh-huh. their way of taking him out. They know that dad is bad and they need to they need to get out of the situation. And the way that they choose to do it is to eat him mm-hmm. and so they bite into him and they take him down uh rose is the one who starts it actually yeah. she goes straight for the neck yep and just takes him out and then you know iris is going after his forearm and they eat dad raw mm-hmm. and they do it in front of doc um who they know like he's dying yeah he's not making out of this whatever but 
he <laughs> he's sitting there in the corner like dude what the fuck <laughs> yeah he watches all of it and then like in a weird very depressing sort of thing uh iris was wearing a hairpiece that she realizes uh after doc points it out belonged to his daughter um so he gets it back at mm-hmm. the end mm-hmm. and that's how he dies is with his daughter's hair clip and the kids leave I mean, he got closure. He got closure, I guess. But these kids got closure. Like, there definitely is this feeling um, where I think Rose isn't as okay with eating dad, where she's like, she's like picking at the food in her mouth. She has this almost look like, "Mm, I'm thinking about spitting this out, Mm -hmm. but I'm not. But Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. It was means to an end for her. Absolutely. Like, Um, she killed him just the way that she did in like pure gothic poetry of like, this is how dad has to die. And then what's interesting, though, is that when they leave and they're driving away, Rose has the book. Mm -hmm. And that's your implication. Like, they're not done being cannibals. Like, they're going to continue being cannibals. This new generation's going to start their own tradition. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, that's the implication. Or there's just very much like that no one could ever see this book. Like, people can never know this. But I think... we're your own devices. Yeah, I think we're supposed to take away that they're going to continue doing this. And... I think that is such like a weirdly powerful message in the way that like I don't want to call it generational trauma because I that's like the easy buzzword that gets thrown around a lot. But for lack of a better term, generational trauma in that they have left this oppressive society. They have left dad. He is gone. Mom is gone. They no longer have any ties to that world. And yet they're still going to carry on this tradition because there's this belief that they have of like, well, this is just who we are. Mm -hmm. We are who we are. We can't change that. This is who we are. And that's so bleak and heartbreaking Mm -hmm. because I think so many people and you, you could, you could apply this to any number of things, but I think it is such a like, that is such like a like a closeted queer way of looking at things of the amount of people I know that were raised in like very religious households. But I know they're I know they're gay. Like I've met them. I've talked to them. I know that they're gay, but they refuse to allow themselves to like be anything other than the good Catholic, the good Christian, what have you. And they just completely abandon any possibility of being something different, something better, something truthful, something more authentic. Because this is this is who I am. I'm I'm a religious person or like I know people who are out to their friends but not to their family and will never come out to their mm-hmm. family. And while everybody makes their concessions where they can, it's just so heartbreaking because I'm watching these the, these kids drive away with this book And in my heart of hearts, it's like, but you're so much more than cannibalism. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to you and you don't have to continue this tradition, but they're going to because they feel like they have to because they need deprogramming. Yeah. What else do you have? Right. Like this is one of those situations where like even removed from queerness, even removed from cannibalism, uh, there is, I don't know, what's like expressions like you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Right. Like, there is a part of you, even if you go through all of the measures to deprogram yourself or expand your worldview or what have you, there is still a part of that in you because Mm -hmm. it's how you were raised, it's how you were influenced, and it's what you do with it. 
Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the larger world is too scary. Maybe they just don't know any other way to live because th- this is all they've ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's a lot of things that can go to into it, but maybe, maybe they just don't even realize that there's not really another option. Like, like I don't if think they could, if they could find someone, had they not eaten Wyatt Russell, maybe he could have been the person to be like, I can show you a world right. and it's not full of cannibalism <laughs> and like that sort of thing. Maybe, but like they need someone to sort of break that cycle and break them out of this thing because they can't do it on their own or maybe they just won't do it on their own. It's all up to, this is an ending that's open to like a million interpretations. Totally. But like the, the, the basic thing of like what you are is such a heavy topic in any circumstance. Absolutely. Like, whenever anybody talks about, like, well, what are you? Who are you? My brain always goes to that conversation and across the universe where he's like, what do you do? Because what you do is who you are. And it's like, no, who you are is who you are. Mm -hmm. And, like, who you are is what you do. And, like, there's so many ways to answer that question. And so whenever I see this ending, like, like, that is the true horror to me. Like, obviously, everything that happened before is devastating to watch and, like, really deeply fucked up. But the fact that, like, even leaving that circumstance does not, like, break the cycle is so scary because, like, that is my worst nightmare Mm. uh, is is not being able to break that cycle. And this is going to get, like, a weird, like, soapboxy kind of thing. And, you know, forgive me for it, I guess. But, like, these are the kind of conversations that we have in, like, anti-racist circles where it's, like, Hey, no, white people, it's not like a one-time thing where, like, suddenly you decide you're not racist anymore. Like, that's not how it works. It's a continual thing. It's a continual thing. It is an active thing that you have to be working on every single fucking day of your life because you were raised in a white supremacist culture and you benefited from white supremacy your entire life. You can't just magically decide to opt out. That's not how it works. You have to actively be an anti-racist every single day. And, like, that's kind of what these kids need is, like, they have to actively work to be not cannibals um, every day, and they also don't have any resources, and it's in a situation where, like, they can't talk about it. Like, mm-hmm. you can't go into a therapist's office or, like, there's no, like, there's no book on this. There's no... No, you incriminate yourself if you go ahead and talk to your therapist <laughs> right, about like, it. Right, like, there's nothing that they can do about this situation, and so that's what makes it just so harrowing is you're just, like... Oh no! Like they're doomed. Like there's this, this is <laughs> like doomed. a this is an uh I mean obviously the Donner Party or like the Cannibal the Musical type situation. Obviously those are a, a line you can draw. But like no, this is I know what you did last summer. Like this is a secret we can never tell anyone, or it will ruin our lives. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and the other thing too, you think of even on top of that is it's like okay, so say they got caught and they get arrested or whatever. What happens to them when it is like the year of when they're supposed to eat a person and they don't and they don't die? Mm-hmm. Like, that's going to fucking blow their minds. Like, mm-hmm. that's going to wreck them. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe even they don't get caught in jail. Maybe they, they just go, hey, maybe this year we're just going to skip it and see what happens. And then well, nothing we'll happens. Take a rum spring on it. <laughs> yeah. And then nothing happens. It's like, uh, oh my god like but then at the same time it's like but are they just gonna like move goalposts like we have no idea like cult like mindset is so 
terrifying to me. And we are unfortunately seeing the rise of cults thanks to things like QAnon. And it's one of those things where like, there, there was a meme going around earlier this week where somebody had posted like a year ago, one of my friends works in the medical field and he told me that on October 10th, all of the whatever's in the vaccine are getting turned on. So, you know, there's going to be mass casualties and like whatever bullshit. And obviously that didn't happen because that's not a fucking thing. And it's like, okay, so how was that guy's day on Mm -hmm. October 10th? Did it break him? Did it change everything? Or did the goalpost move again? And I think the answer is the the goalpost moved again because that's how... Just be like, oh, I must, I must have gotten something wrong. Right. Um, like, I don't know, people approach imminent demise or imminent catastrophe if they see it coming, or at least they think they see it coming in different ways. Um, it makes me think, like, not in terms of cults, but, like, remember that time that, like, that emergency signal was sent out to Hawaii wherever, where it told everyone that they were about to get hit with a missile strike? Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, God, we're all going to die. And uh, it mostly was a lot of people having sex and watching porn. Yes. Uh, like Pornhub, I think, went up by like 800% or something. Yeah, it like skyrocketed. Yeah, so it was just people going like, what should I do with my last mortal moments? Uh, carnal desire. Uh-huh. So, um, I don't know. People people approach their... People kind of deal with tragedy and their mortality in a very immediate sense mm-hmm. in very different ways. Um, cults, they, I think they probably approach it with this satisfaction of like being like, I told you so. And then it doesn't mm-hmm. pan out. And it's like, actually, um, here's what happened. And they have to walk it back. But mm-hmm. like the pointing out that I told you so doesn't get through to them. No. Like pointing out the flaws, like saying like, aha, I got you. Like the internet likes to do doesn't work. <laughs> no, it does not. And, you know, I, I can't help. But when I watch this movie, I do think about the amount of women that get suckered in or born into Cults. And like when I say suckered and like that's not to be like, haha, they're suckers. Like that's rude and really dismissive. Like they've been horrifically manipulated. Um, but I think like I think about those people when I watch this movie. And obviously, like it's a horror movie, so cannibalism it's what's being used instead of the traditional weird sex culty stuff that we see mm-hmm. all the time. But it is it's just so alarming how common it is. And, like, there was a thing going around on TikTok the other day. And I do want to actually want to shout out to uh, a friend that we met, Dana, um, who works over at Tumblr. And mm-hmm. Dana said their new favorite thing is that instead of telling people they saw something on TikTok, is saying, oh, I read this article the other day. Um, so that they don't have to admit that they got their information from TikTok. It has more legitimacy. Because <laughs> it. it has more legitimacy. Even though there are plenty of people doing, like, really legitimate, good research and work and presenting it on TikTok because that's the way to get it to the younger generation now. Uh-huh. Um, but somebody was talking about polyamory and why, like, polygamy laws exist and whatever. And they're like, it's not to be oppressive to, like, you and your polycule who are raising children together and having like a wonderful life and having this very healthy polyamorous sort of relationship. It's because the way that polyamory and polygamy is used in mass, especially in this country is stuff like the, the FLDS sort of thing where like women and children are taken advantage of by these like terrifying, oppressive and manipulative men. Mm -hmm. And that's why those laws exist because that is the vast majority 
of polyamorous relationships in this country, but we never talk about it in those contexts because we want to be like, oh, well, that's a cult. And we just like kind of push it to the side when in reality it's like, yeah, but when, when you break it down like structurally and legally in terms of protection, in terms of protection, like that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's why those laws exist. It's not to be exclusive and like shitty to people who are polyamorous. It's to protect people from getting trapped legally into cults because yeah. it's so fucking common and we like to pretend that it's fringe and it's not. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, we should definitely have distinctions between the two. But as Oh, for sure. As it stands right now, like that is what that law has always been in place for. Right. And only very recently has like healthy polyamory come into like public consciousness. Right. Like healthy polyamory has always existed in like multitudes of cultures all across the globe. But in terms of it being like a common thing that people are aware of and having conversations about without it being like, ooh, do you know what a pineapple in, means? In, like in this country. In yes. this country. And also yes. our legal system is excruciatingly slow. It, so oh um, my God, yeah. And like, <laughs> very hetero. Yes. So it's it's gonna take a while before yeah. we, we sort of get all that sorted out. It's gonna take a bit. But I love that this movie exists because the reason horror always resonates with me is because it is an execution of the anxieties of a culture at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And obviously like cults and oppressive societies are terrifying on their own, but to see it formed through this lens where the ultimate crime is like cannibalism and the complications that it leads within familial dynamics, social dynamics, I think is so interesting and it's just a shame that this movie kind of got slept on when it came out. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it for the show. I'm fully aware this will be our least listened to episode of Halloween. I know that. But for those who watch the movie and hear this episode and seek out this movie because of it, like my job is done here then. Mm -hmm. Like this is one of those word of mouth, like mm -hmm. low budget or indie releases that yes. we shouted out during the context thing where it's like, it only gets known about if you actually talk about it. Yes. And a lack of a marketing department and a lack of a marketing budget does not mean that the movie wasn't worth having it. It oh, just yeah. means that it was deprioritized because again, Julia Garner was not an Emmy award winner yet. Like if this movie was released today, like if someone did a re-release for like the 10 year anniversary of this movie next year, I could absolutely seeing people like buying this up like hotcakes and They'll being buy it like, and go, why is no one talking about this? Movie? Why did no one talk about this? Like Julia Garner is so good in this. Oh my God, this cast is amazing. Wyatt Russell's amazing. Like that's what would happen because people know who these actors are now, but they didn't in 2013. And like, I don't, you know, blame people for that. Your time is valuable. Your money is valuable. You don't have to like take a risk with everything. I get it. But like, it's been a decade now. This movie fucking rules. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I think that kind of takes us out on uh, We Are What We Are. So Harmony, the question remains. We Are What We Are is asking you to the very meaty prom. Mm. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Are you buying her tickets so she can go on her own? So this is one of those films that ends up in like a, a one of these unique situations that can go one of two ways. Where uh, is is this a movie that I will rewatch? Probably not. It's not a Harmony movie. I mean, it's not a Harmony movie for me, but it's not... Okay, so I should specify that, like, I don't like slow burns, which is why, like, mm -hmm. ghost movies uh, don't work for me. Uh, there was a lot of them around this period. Yes. Um, I, I, I find them very dry, very blah. Um, this is, like, an American gothic tale yes. rather than it is, like, a straight-up horror movie. Yes. Um, 
the way that it's linked to history has attachments to ghost stories, but it is not a slow burn. It mm-hmm. just, it's deliberate. It takes its time. It almost is more of a southern drawl that is very, very articulate and very designed in the things it is going to say. And it'll get to the end of this sentence when it chooses to. Yes. Like, that's how this movie feels. Mm-hmm. So... This could go in one of two ways where it's just like, well, I'll send it on its own because, like, yeah, I'll never watch it again, but it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, no, more people should watch it. So, like, I'm going to say yes, even if I don't intend on watching it again, because this is a movie I would recommend. Amazing. Yeah, that that's kind of how I've broken it down, because this is one of those films that just is like, uh, it's, it's in this mid-ground thing where I mm-hmm. don't exactly know where to place it in our in our judging scale. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of hoping that that was the route you were going to take, because as much as, like, yes, this deserves to be at the prom, this is a movie that cannot go on its own. Like, other movies that you've sent on its own, like, they don't need our help. This movie does need our help. Mm. Like, this movie does not get talked about nearly enough. It has not been seen as as much as it should be. And it's just filled with so many good performances and really rich storytelling that only gets richer the more you talk about it. And so I'm very happy that this was a yes. Uh, I was a little worried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that's a that's a very, very good approach to it all. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends Up Prom. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocit underscore trap underscore tour. And thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool indie band do you want people to check out this week inspired by We Are What We Are? So throughout this whole movie, Dad keeps putting on like these very old timey country albums. So uh, for the first, for the the third time in, I don't know, the last like six episodes, y'all are getting a country artist again because this is the (laughs) most appropriate episode for me to be doing that. So I am shouting out Nick Shoulders. I needed to have someone that sounds like they come out of a gramophone. I wanted something that was a uh, very roots based. This is the, the when I say like country, um, like you remember in the Blues Brothers when it's like, oh, we play all kinds of music, country and Western. <laughs> yeah, this is not Western. This is like pre Western roots country that borders on folk. This is the kind of country that uses yodeling and whistling and like some stomps and claps. It's a it's a it's a rollicking good time at its ha- higher tempos. Love it. So Dick Shoulders is very based in like the roots of music and a lot of the content of the songs is about dealing with the complicated relationship with the South and having a lot of love for like the good things, but also acknowledging the very bad things about the South. So um, the album that I actually came to, which is still my favorite, is OK Crawdad. And it's super duper fun. Like I recommend Too Old to Dream or Rather Low off of that album. But uh, in 2021, they released a album called Home on the Rage. Did you say Home on the Rage? Home on the Rage. What a great name. It's very good. Um, it is a pandemic album. It is uh, a bit sullen, uh, a, a bit dour. The opening track, Turn on the Dark, is a great song that you could put on like a spooky playlist and it would work. But like they're these more sparse, introspective, um, melancholy <laughs> country songs. And it's equally good in a completely opposite way from my favorite album by them. So... There you go. Amazing. Well, friends, give them a listen, and we will see you next week with the end of spooky season. (laughs) We'll see you then, and as always, save that last dance for us.
Bye. Bye. We receive. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.